Now take your Bible and turn to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. And let me read just the first 14 verses of John chapter 21. After these things, John manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And he manifested himself in this way. There were together Simon and Thomas called Didymus and Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two other of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat and that night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Jesus therefore said to them, children, do you not have any fish, uh, do you? And they answered, uh, he answered, or they answered to him, no. Uh, he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will catch fish. They cast therefore, and therefore they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. That disciple therefore whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. And so Simon, uh, Peter uh, heard that it was the Lord. He put, out his, uh, uh, put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for uh, it was not far from the land, about a hundred yards away, dragging the net full of fish. And so when they got out upon the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid, and fish placed on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come, have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him. Uh, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave them and the fish likewise Now, this is the third time that Jesus was manifest to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we are thankful for how your goodness and thankful for an opportunity to worship you this morning and thankful for your word. And we pray, Lord, you guide us and teach us from it. We love you and are just so thankful for your blessing in our life. Honor Christ and yourself through our teaching. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you never thought you'd turn the page, did you? Yeah, chapter 21. Here we go. Last chapter in the book. We will not be here very long because it's just pretty much a straightforward narrative. Uh, the opening verses of John's gospel uh, back in chapter 1, one verses, uh, one, chapter 1, 1, verse 8 through uh, verse 18 really serves as the prologue to the book uh, where the Holy Spirit sets forth who Christ is and where he was before he came into this earth from the Father. Uh, the, the pre-incarnate activity, if you will, of the Lord Jesus uh, summarized in those verses. And then you come to the 21st chapter, and it's really the epilogue. It's uh, showing who Christ is after his redemptive work is finished, as he prepares to return to the Father. So chapter 21, uh, the first 25 verses there, the, the entire chapter really emphasizes the post 
resurrection ministry of the Lord from John's perspective. So the prologue and the epilogue really serve as a balance of the book. It gives symmetry to the book, bracketing the life and the work of, uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when you come to the 21st chapter, there's a lot of discussion amongst the so-called scholars and academics, commentators, uh, as whether or not chapter 21 should even be considered uh, to be part of John's gospel. Or was it something that was added later by another writer after John had already finished the gospel account in John chapter 20, verse 31? Now, the truth is there's no evidence whatsoever that uh, in the manuscript that it would support a theory that chapter 21 is an addition. And, and there's no evidence that chapter 21 in John's gospel ever circulated or got John's gospel ever circulated without chapter 21 uh, being a part of it in the extent or the remaining uh, uh, manuscripts, they, they all included it. And there's not the slightest um, proof of any trustworthy ancient uh, writer who ever regarded the last chapter of John's gospel as less than genuine or less than inspired uh, than the rest of the book. So all, all of this talk is, is, is kind of frivolous. So chapter 21 really is a fitting into the gospel and it gives us additional testimony and affirmation of the fact that Jesus is alive. Uh, again, after uh, verse, verse 14 says, again, this is the third time that Jesus manifested himself to the disciples after he raised from the dead. So again, this is really another final proof that Jesus is, has defeated death upon Calvary's cross, that he, he's come back to life after his execution, and he is alive presently. Now, if John's gospel had ended in chapter 20, verse 31, then that would leave a number of questions unanswered, such as what is the relationship of the Lord Jesus to his disciples after the resurrection? And again, that's answered in the first 14 verses of the chapter. And we're going to see that Jesus still, after the resurrection, still has an interest in his people. He still displays a tender love and compassionate care. He has marvelous power, and none of that is diminished in any fashion. And then another question would be what happens to Peter because we got to finish up that story. So what happens to Peter who denied the Lord? That's verses 15 and set through 17 of the chapter. And we're going to see the Lord Jesus graciously reinstate uh, the one who had sinned so grievously against him. And then the Lord's going to entrust him uh, with the important task of shepherding uh, the flock of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and then what should we expect? What should the disciples expect in the future? Uh, that's verses 18 and 19 of the chapter. And the answer to that question is really going to be persecution, persecution. And then there was this kind of idea or maybe this kind of rumor that was kind of floating out there that John would never die, that he was going to live until Jesus returns. And that question or that issue is answered in verses 20 through 23. And another thing that is out there uh, with uh, so many events that happened in the life of the Lord Jesus, so many signs and miracles that transpired. Why did John not include all the many other uh, signs that Jesus also performed in, uh, in his gospel narrative? And again, that's verses 24 through 25. So if John's gospel just ended at chapter 20, verse 31, then there's a whole lot of questions that would leave uh, unanswered, a whole lot more information that we need here at the conclusion of the gospel. Now, when you come to this chapter, again, listen, it's just a very straightforward narrative. It's just a very straightforward, simple narrative. But unfortunately, when it comes to this chapter, there seems to be more than just a little bit 
of stuff going on. And I'm going to give you, you might want to take your pen out so you can write this down. I'm going to give you a theological word that may be new to some of you that you never heard before. But when you come to this chapter, there's a whole lot of, and here's the theological word. It's called monkey business. Okay? Do I need to spell that or you guys are right? Right? Monkey business going on in this chapter with the commentators or at least a whole great deal of spiritualizing of the text or allegorizing of the text that has historically entered into the discussion on this chapter that is completely needless. It's unwarranted. In the text, it's going to tell us that the disciples are going to go fishing and they're going to go fishing at night. Now, presumably means that the disciples went fishing and they went fishing at night. And they went fishing for fish because that's what you fish for when you go fishing for fish. You fish for fish. And I thought, well, this is maybe getting too complicated, so I need to kind of define what fish are. They're limbless, cold-blooded animals with backbones, gills, and fins, and they live in the water all the time or they, they die. Now, the fact that they went fishing at night for fish presumably you would have to assume that they felt they could catch more fish at night than they could fish catch during the day, so they went at night. So fishing for fish, again, simply means they're fishing for fish. Am, am I going too fast here? I do not see a need, as many commentators do, to turn the concept of fish into some kind of secret code for, quote-unquote, men who get saved. I don't see a reason to suggest that by the fact that they went fishing at night that they were, open quote, not walking as children of light, close quote, right? That they're in some kind of great spiritual darkness. And I'm going to go as far as to suggest when the text says they caught 153 large fish, I actually mean, I actually believe it means they caught 153 large fish, not 154 not 152, but 153. I do not believe that when it says they caught 153 large fish, I do not believe that 153 is a reference to an important date in church history, namely 153 AD. I do not believe that the number of the number 153 represents 100 for the Gentiles, 50 for the Jews, and three for the Trinity. Whatever. Nor that 153 references some kind of is some kind of veiled reference to all the kinds of people that are going to get saved. I do not believe this might be one of my favorites. I do not believe that 153 represents the sum of all the numbers one through 17. So you can work on that this afternoon. Just take your calculator out. And, and I don't believe that 153 represents the numerical value of Hebrew characters and it spells out someone's name. Simon Iona, nor do I believe that uh, the text says 153, uh, that the idea is that the fish are counted because uh, they weren't counted until they came to shore in order to teach us that the exact number of the elect remains unknown until they reach the shores of heaven. Now, all of these kind of ideas are, here's another word for you, ridiculous. Uh, they're ridiculous and ridiculously unhelpful, but these are the kind of comments that have been put forward over the years uh, by various commentators uh, just with this one thing with the 153 fish that were caught. And when the text says, look in verse 11, that 153 fish were caught, there were so many of them, it says, 
the text was not torn, that probably does not mean as to be some kind of coded reference to the fact that Jesus loses none of his elect. More than likely, when it says the net was not torn, more than likely it means the net was not torn. Perhaps suggesting they were using a better net than the last time they went fishing, right? I'm not way out there. Am I on this? Are you guys okay? The Holy Spirit, who is directing the pen of John to write down what he wants recorded, is a sufficient enough communicator to communicate to men exactly what we need to know from the text of Scripture. I've told you this a number of times. God wants to be known. He wants to be understood. Therefore, he speaks clearly, and words mean something. So the text means exactly what it says. You do not need to mail in three cereal box tops and $5 in order to get the secret decoder ring to understand the word of God. The verses say exactly what they say in a very straightforward narrative fashion. And God is communicating to those who would take up the book and read. Now, when you come to chapter 21, that would presume that the events of chapter 20 are over. Jesus has been crucified. He's dead. Uh, he's been buried. Mary Magdalene has gone to the tomb uh, on that first day of the week, but the stone has been removed uh, from the stone of the, uh, the entrance uh, uh, to the tomb. So she runs back and she grabs uh, uh, Peter and John for help. These men respond immediately. Uh, they run to the tomb and the grave cloths, the grave clothes are, are lying there in the tomb uh, orderly uh, in an orderly arrangement. But Jesus' body is absent, which starts these men, Peter and John, to consider what they've actually seen. And then they go back to their home. And then just a few moments later, Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene, who's weeping. She's distraught. She doesn't know where the body of her dear uh, Lord is. Uh, even after she has a conversation with the, with the angels, she has great grief until she meets this man who she assumes to be the caretaker of the garden, yet with that one word, Miriam right, or Mary, pronounced in a very familiar voice with a very tender uh, manner. It changes everything, right? She realizes who she's talking to. She cries out, Rabboni, right? She's encountered the, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And then the Lord Jesus appears to the disciples with the exception of Thomas, who isn't there. These guys have locked themselves in a room, and, and they're, they're fearful of the Jews. They're expecting the next door, uh, knock on the door to be perhaps their executioners. And then with this locked door and everybody hiding in this room in fear, Jesus suddenly appears, shows them his hands and his side, blesses them with peace, and comforts them with the fact that he really has defeated death. He appears again a week later to his disciples, this time with Thomas present. Remember I told you it's not so much doubting Thomas. The great problem with Thomas is he was missing. He was missing Thomas. He, he was not there the week before, therefore he missed the blessing that the Lord had for him and the other disciples, again, that specifically being his presence. But then when the Lord permitted him or even really commands him, commands Thomas to see and feel the wounds in his body, uh, Thomas evokes from his lips that great, glorious exclamation and, and confession, my Lord and my God. The deity of Jesus Christ has been affirmed, confirmed, just like it was affirmed at the beginning of the gospel in John chapter 1, verse 1. And at the same time with that, great uh, exclamation by Thomas, the purpose of John's gospel has been fulfilled. John 20, verse 31, these things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you might have life in his name. 
Now, again, initially, you know the story. Initially, none of the disciples believed what the Lord said was going to happen, that, that he was going to suffer, he was going to be mistreated, but he would, and, and, and die, but that he would raise victoriously from, the, from uh, death on the third day. So when Jesus did die in the context of the story, uh, so did all the hopes of the 11. They, they thought the, those happy days of fellowship with the great prophet of Nazareth would never return, that it was gone. And so when the master died, the disciples died also. Again, all their hopes, all their aspirations, all their deepest affections, their fondest anticipations were all buried with their Lord. Until what? Until light came. Until light came into darkness and life conquered death. Until the risen Lord Jesus Christ appeared in their very presence. Because the risen Lord Jesus Christ changes everything. The risen Lord Jesus Christ changes everything. The cross that was the very instrument of, uh, of despair becomes the object of glory. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead becomes the source of life and hope. And again, from the very lips of Peter, who once knew that great dark despair and desperation, uh, remorse uh, when, when the Savior died, when he seemingly lost his uh, dear Lord. It was Peter who says in 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus Christ is alive, and Jesus Christ alive changes everything. All right? So that's just the introduction as we start to put some thoughts here to this 21st chapter. So let's dig in here. Uh, chapter 21, verse 1. After these things, Jesus manifested himself uh, again from, to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. He manifested himself in this way. Now, that phrase, after these things, just refers to some unspecified time after the events that just happened that I kind of uh, went through very quickly in chapter 20. So the disciples have left Jerusalem. They've made their way north to Galilee because that's what Jesus has commanded them to do. So again, the text says, after these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this fashion or this way. So according to verse 14, this is the third time that he has appeared post-resurrection to his disciples. Now we know from Acts chapter 1 verse 3 that Jesus was with his disciples for 40 days after his resurrection. That does not necessarily mean that Jesus was with them every single moment of those 40 days, but again, he was with them for 40 days total, and again, this is the third time that he has appeared for them, and now he's going to happen, he's going to appear to them this time in Galilee. Now, it would have taken the disciples a bit of time to walk from Judea to Galilee. Uh, that was the last place they saw him there in the upper room. So somewhere between the eighth day and the 14th day, Jesus manifests himself. And again, in that one verse, that term manifested is used twice. He manifested himself again to the disciples, and then he manifested himself in this fashion. And, and what that word basically means is to make visible or to make clear. The ESV says that after he revealed himself, uh, again, to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself in this way. Or the authorized, the King James says, he showed himself. Now, we don't know exactly where he did this, where he manifested or showed himself. Uh, it, uh, but, but the idea behind the word is that he made a sudden physical appearance. That's what it means, revealed, manifested, made himself visible. So, so that the disciples could see him. So it's not just that the disciples saw him in a generic fashion, but it's that he kind of bursts on the scene, so to speak. He reveals himself. He suddenly, supernaturally, uh, startling appears uh, as if out of nowhere, the way he did to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, the way he did there in that upper uh, room, the way he did to, to Mary Magdalene. He just kind of shows up. 
And he appears before them instantaneously. Again, in the upper room, the doors are all locked, right? But there Jesus kind of shows up. He manifested himself. That's the idea. The glorified, resurrected conqueror of death manifests himself. He manifests himself in power and his presence and in glory. Again, he's physically alive. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples. But in this post-resurrection appearances, this post-resurrection of body, it's the same, but it's somehow different. Again, Mary Magdalene thought she was speaking to somebody else. And when she saw him, she thought he was the gardener. Uh, the disciples, again, on the road to Emmaus, they had no idea who he was. They had this long, drawn-out conversation with him in the middle of the day, and yet till he manifests himself, right? So he allows them to know who he was, and he reveals himself to them. One writer says this, his body is his body, but his body is different. His body is a body fit for eternity, not a body for a time. It's a body fit for heaven, not a body for earth. So it's same, but it's different. And after these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples who were going, uh, and, and we're going to see here in the text, there's only seven disciples, seven of the men that are present at the time. The text doesn't tell us where the other four are, so if we were to speak on that, it would just be mere speculation. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. Now, give me, let me give you a little bit of background information uh, on the Sea of Tiberias. It comes from the city of Tiberias on the western sh uh, shore. It had been founded, a city fa founded by Herod Antipas uh, in uh, it named in honor of the emperor Tiberius. So the writer says the Sea of Tiberius is better known as the Sea of Galilee, sometimes uh, the Sea of Chenereth or Chenereth, depending on where you're at in the Old Testament, Lake of Gesenereth. Uh, it's a freshwater lake through which the River Jordan runs. It's 12 and a half miles long, six and three-quarter miles wide. Uh, a remarkable uh, uh, geographical point is that it's uh, 655 feet or so below the level of the Mediterranean Sea. From a theological viewpoint, some of the Lord's most um, uh, mightiest miracles were wrought on that sea or very close to it. The Lord walked on the water there. He came to his disciples when they were toiling and rowing. You might remember that. He enabled a Peter to walk on the water just for a, a short amount of time. He stilled the waves and, and the, uh, uh, the wind there when it was in, in an uproar just by speaking, be still. Uh, that's where the Lord granted to four of his uh, uh, apostles a, a miraculous draft of fish. He provided payment again for, for uh, tribute money, remember that, uh, out of the mouth of a fish, which he commanded Peter to go out and catch. Uh, on the banks of the fish, or on the banks of that lake, he fed the multitude uh, with just a few loaves and fishes. Uh, on the high ground that overlooked that lake, uh, he cast out a legion of demons into uh, 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 to some swine and allowed them to be driven over, uh, 2,000 of them driven over the edge of, uh, the, edge of the cliff into the sea. Towns that are on the border, uh, Chenereth, Bethesda, uh, Bethsaida, and uh, Capernaum. And he did some of his mightier, mightier works there. He sat in the boat, the lake there, delivered the parable of the sower. So in short, the district here around this, this lake, uh, the, the Sea of Tiberias or uh, uh, um, the Sea of Galilee, there, there's a lot of interaction in the New Testament with the Lord Jesus Christ and, and events surrounding this, this body of water. Verse 2 says, There together Simon... Uh, Peter and Thomas called Didymus, which just means twin, and Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two other. Uh, of, of, uh, there were together Simon and Peter, uh, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, sons of Zebedee and two other of his disciples. Now again, seven of the eleven disciples are present. The text doesn't tell us who the other four are. It doesn't name them. 
the last, uh, or doesn't tell us where the other four are, the last, excuse me, the last two disciples in the list that is given, they're not, their name's not given. Um, most commentators would believe that it's probably Andrew and Philip's. Uh, Andrew and Philip, they have a very close tie to Peter and the sons of Zebedee, and according to Matthew chapter 4, verse 21, the sons of Zebedee would be James and John. Now, why are these men listed in this order? Uh, it's not explicitly explained in the text, although some commentators believe that Peter and Thomas are listed first and second in the order, and that's significant, because Thomas has literally, from chapter 20 to chapter 21, has just literally come from the realm of unbeliever, right, the rank of unbeliever in the resurrection of Jesus Christ to a full-fledged believer and one who affirms the deity of Christ. And uh, uh, um, uh, he not only affirms that Jesus is the Christ, he affirms that he is the son of the living God. And just by the way, if you weren't here with us last week, that's what we did last week. We went and spent some time looking at what those two terms means. What does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? We understand it from a, a kind of our perspective, but what does it mean from the Jewish perspective that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God? So if you missed that, you might want to go back and just pick that up. Uh, Thomas is listed again first. Uh, again, he's made this great transformation from unbeliever to believer. And, and then Peter, uh, who has just recently denied uh, the Lord Jesus. And he's about to be recommissioned uh, here in, in the next few verses to follow. So perhaps both of these men are listed because they're referenced very closely in the context, and perhaps both of them are listed because, again, it's just another illustration of God's grace uh, in their life and towards all men. James Boyce comments like this. He says, Can we miss that the church is made up of those who are doubters, deniers, and sinners of many varieties, but who have been brought to faith by Christ, who have had their sins forgiven? These are the, of the ones who do Christian work, normal people with all failings uh, that we are also heir to, not fictitious characters or superhuman faith uh, with superhuman faith and fortitude. I mean, God doesn't have anybody else to use, right, except us, and we're sinners, right? just ordinary people. Another writer says pretty much along the same lines, he says the list of names, and we are reminded of the character of Christ's church uh, as it was then, so the church has always consisted of those who've been spiritual failures and non-entities, right? We're just normal people. That's, that's who God has to work with. That's who makes up his church. Normal people saved by grace. Now, Peter and Thomas are mentioned, along with Nathaniel. Nathaniel is the only other appearance in the, in the gospel. It was all the way back in chapter 1. Peter was there. John was there. And most likely, the, again, the other two being Andrew and uh, Philip, they were also there. So it's possible that, uh, that John is showing that six of those who were involved in chapter 1, the exception being Thomas, because he kind of shows up late here, that perhaps he is showing the fact that there's a testimony of God's perseverance with those who belong to him. They, they, they remain his. Now, those who God calls to himself are, are not lost. The same group of men that started out at the beginning, they're going to show up here again at the end of the gospel. That's a possibility. Verse 3 says, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will also come with you. They went out and got in the boat at night, and they caught nothing. Now, it's at this point where it all kind of explodes with the commentators. It, 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 there's a tremendous amount of divergence amongst the commentaries, commentators. And, and as when you come to verse 3, because the point of controversy becomes Peter and his fishing expedition. There are some very prominent commentators uh, who would vehemently hold to the position that Peter, at this moment, is walking in great disobedience to the Lord. 
This is not just some recreational fishing excursion, but, but this is a major deal, and, and uh, he's in, in great disobedience. So again, it's not just impatient, uh, uh, impulsive Peter acting because he's tired, but rather Peter is declaring he is done, done with this. I'm going a different direction. I'm going back to my old, my old profession. I'm finished with ministry. And there's a number of commentators who would take that position. One writer says this. It says, it seems clearly that these seven disciples had no business there at the sea because they were told to go to the mountain that, that Jesus had appointed. So again, those who would hold this view uh, say that Peter and these other men, they're walking in great disobedience. And then they would take the time to present to you three lines of evidence to support their conclusion. The first line of evidence would come out of John chapter 16, verse 32, where Jesus had predicted uh, that these, all these men would abandon him. John 16, verse 32, Behold, an hour is coming, and has already come for you to be scattered, and each one to his own home, to leave me alone, and yet I am not alone, my Father is with me. Now, it's interesting because in the, in the original text, the word home is not there. It's been added by the translators. So the text simply reads like this, to his own. Behold, an hour is coming, has already come, for you to be scattered each to his own. And, and, and the idea behind that word own really encompasses own everything, your own home, your own possessions, your, your own affairs. Now, Paul uses the phraseology, the same phraseology over in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 11, uh, your own business. So, so again, what the, the people who would hold this position, these guys are walking in gross disobedience, uh, would say that Christ's prediction has come true. And, and again, this is, this is not just these guys. These guys are abandoning the faith. They're going back to their own, going back to their own affairs. So that's the first line. The second line uh, they would use is that, uh, again, that Peter's walking in great disobedience, returning to his old profession is... is uh, proved, they would say, by the use of the definite article uh, uh, in front of the noun boat. Uh, so look there uh, carefully. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat. Not a boat, but the boat, definite article. The boat, probably suggesting the one that they used uh, previously, the one that belonged to the disciples. Maybe he belonged to Peter himself. And then the third line of reasoning that these men would put forth, that Peter is, um, again, walking in disobedience, uh, going back to his former livelihood, is the Lord's challenge. Uh, verse uh, 15 of John chapter 21. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon, uh, said to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And more than likely, the interpretation would be in the context that the word these would be these things, these, this boat, uh, the, the nets, the other paraphernalia you, knew you need to go into the fishing business. So again, the Lord is challenging Peter and, and calling Peter to turn away from his former livelihood of, of being a fisherman and become totally committed to him. Do you love me more than these? So again, when Peter says, I'm going fishing, uh, there's a whole lot of commentators who would say, again, this is much more than just a recreational adventure. This is a wholesale departure into disobedience from what the Lord has told them to do that they were to go to Jerusalem and to wait until he shows up. So again, I'm going fishing. That just means I'm going back to my old career undone. Now, of course, that's just one side of the story. There's another side of the story, and, and people would take the other side, the opposite uh, uh, argument that these men are not really walking in gross disobedience, but they're just filling the time until uh, Jesus arrives fishing. 
And honestly, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think there's enough compelling evidence that really commands you to believe uh, one side uh, uh, or the other or to take a dogmatic position one way or the other. I personally uh, strongly lean against the idea that this is full-on active, uh, the word that I like by one commentator, audacious disobedience on the part of Peter and these other men. I, I, I can't go there. In, in part, I can't go there because up to this point, the Great Commission has not been given. And, and up to this point, uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit has not been given uh, to empower these men for, for ministry. So I, I, I don't know that I can go that, be, be that dogmatic, audacious disobedience. Now, another verse to consider that you throw in the hopper here that would be offered by the men that would hold to that position of audacious disobedience, that these guys are flat out abandoning the ministry, going back to their old profession. Put a mark there in your Bible so you don't lose your spot. Um, but it would be to um, uh, look back at what happened in Luke chapter 5. So, so turn there in Luke chapter 5. And here's where the Lord has told Peter and these other men, really drop your nets and stop fishing for fish. Start fishing for men. Luke uh, chapter 5, verse 1. Now it came about that while the multitude were pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, uh, but the fishermen had gotten out of them. And they were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the multitudes from the boat. And when he finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out deep into the water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but by your bidding, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. And they signaled to their partners in the boat, for them to come, and the other boat, for them to come and help. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. Verse 8, but when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For amazement had seized him and all the companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. Verse 10, so, and so also James and John, sons of Debedee, were partners with Simon and Jesus said to Simon, do not fear, from now on you will, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So that's three years earlier than our John text. So three years earlier, Christ told them, from this point forward, uh, you will be fishers of men or catchers of men. So the argument would go at the very pinnacle of their uh, profession, the very pinnacle of their earthly uh, career, having just made the greatest catch of fish that they've ever caught on that lake, they are abandoning their boats, they're turning their back on their fishing businesses, and they're leaving everything to follow Jesus. So for three years, they hadn't fished, right? They hadn't been fishing for fish. For three years, they're actually involved, actively involved in the ministry of Christ. And now here in John 21, uh, again, it's been suggested perhaps that Peter is abandoning kingdom activities and uh, returning to his former occupation. 
Now, on the contrary, um, you know, although the Lord has appeared to Peter once post-resurrection, says that in Luke 24, verse 34, it may very well be that in the mind of Peter, things are not exactly clear, right? Because this is three years earlier, and he is the one who's denied the Lord three times. Does he even have a right to return to spiritual activities? A minister, a missionary, whatever. Or has he let down the Lord so terribly that he's not certain he can ever be restored? I mean, just stop and think about in your own life. Have you ever failed the Lord? Have you ever rapidly got to a conclusion where you go, the Lord can never use me again? And then what do you do? You go sit on the sideline and tell somebody, says, you need to get back in the game. If you're trying to think the best of Peter, which I'm trying to think the best of Peter, that's going through my mind at this moment. So I am not convinced there's compelling proof that you can be dogmatic on, on either side of this issue, that these guys are in absolute sinful rebellion and they're abandoning the faith. I, I don't know. I don't know. Go, go back to John 21. John 21, verse 3. Simon and Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they, the rest of the guys, said, we're going with you. We'll, we'll, we'll come with you also. So everybody just lines up and follows him. They went out, they got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. So now again here it's at this point that those who would argue that, that Peter is walking in disobedience and self-willed defiance against the Lord, returning to his previous profession, they would say, you see, disobedience leads to failure. It's just that simple. Well, I guess that's true. I mean, disobedience does lead to failure. The Lord usually doesn't reward us for our disobedience. However, I'll just throw this out there. It's at least possible that when the text says they went out and got into the boat that night and they caught nothing, it's at least possible they went out in the boat and caught nothing because they went out in the boat that night and they caught nothing. I don't know. I fished a little bit before in my life, and sometimes you go out and fish and you don't catch anything. So I'm personally not convinced that you can make the jump to the fact that they didn't catch any fish that, again, they're in great disobedience. I just don't know there's a necessity to spiritualize everything in this portion of, of the narrative. It they just may very, very well be they didn't catch any fish. And, and the whole point of the story is not their disobedience, but maybe the whole point of the story is what Christ will do to provide for them and, and meet their needs. So, again, there's nothing inherently wrong with, with fishing. There, there's nothing inherently wrong uh, to go out and fish. It's true that the Lord had called them to be fishers of men or catchers of men. It's true that three years earlier they left their, their nets and followed him. But I also think it's at least a, a great possibility there's some lack of clarity in, in the minds of these men, perhaps especially Peter, as they wait for the Lord to show up in Galilee. Verse 4 says, But when the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, Yet his disciples did not know it was Jesus. Now, that honestly could be for a number of reasons. I do not personally believe we need to jump immediately to, here's the quote, these men had returned to their worldly calling and were occupied with bodily needs and recognized him not. Surely these things are written for our learning, end quote. Well, I don't know, maybe, <laughs> maybe, or maybe they didn't recognize him because it was still dark outside. It's morning, right? The, the light is breaking forth. 
And I don't know about you, but, uh, you know, it's kind of difficult at times, I think, to see early in the morning when the light's just starting to come forward or when, when the sun is just setting. And, and they are 100 yards away. Perhaps there's some kind of morning mist or haze on the bank. Or it could be that they don't recognize him, uh, the Lord, because after his resurrection, unless the Lord reveals himself, people tend to not recognize him. I think that fits most of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. But to say they didn't recognize him because they're deep in sin and rebellion, to me that seems a bit too far of a stretch, a bit of an overreach. Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Verse 5, Jesus therefore said to them, Children, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered him, No. Now, pation is the word that's used there, children. It's the word that literally means little child, little children. But it's probably best translated in the context we don't use it because we're not from England, but if you're, to use, if you're in England, you'd just say lads, right? You lads. Maybe guys in the vernacular. Children, guys, lads. You, you have not caught any fish. Uh, do you, have any, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered him, no. Now, again, those who take the position that these uh, men, Peter and these other men are walking great disobedience, uh, would say that the, the Lord has uh, led them to, to, to failure, to not catch any fish. And not only that, but now Jesus is not no longer referring to them with, with enduring terms uh, because of their disobedience. Their, 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 their disobedience caused a break in their relationship and a loss of the fullness of uh, fellowship and intimacy. And they would go so far as to say that perhaps even at the moment, uh, in, in essence, they would say that Jesus is kind of rubbing it in because they've been disobedient. They failed to catch fish. And the Lord is really riveting their attention on the fact that they return to their former occupation and complete disobedience against what he has told them to do, therefore the complete failures. And they fail to reckon fully and sufficiently with God's plans for the life. You haven't caught anything all night, have you? That kind of an idea, right? Admit it, you're, you're in disobedience, you're failures. You need to realize apart from me and being disobedient to me, you can do nothing. I don't know, I'm not convinced, but that's the argument. I do believe that the Lord has a higher calling for these men than just fishing. And I do believe that just like these men uh, who have been gifted spiritually by God, if you turn away from what God has called you to do and do other things, then you are walking in disobedience. And while God does indeed have a higher calling for these men than just fishing, it's also true likewise that he has a higher calling for us than just living our lives serving ourselves if we call ourselves christians then we have to be like our master and he was others oriented doing nothing from selfishness or empty conceit but with humility of mind always looking out for uh, about uh, always looking out not just for his own best interest but for the interest of what others right others that's christ likeness so as followers of christ that we are light in a dark world. As, as followers of Christ, we're, we're salt that helps retard the corruption. And we're representatives of him everywhere. We're his ambassadors. Ambassadors of Christ in everything we do. And, and we need to keep that reality always in the forefront of our mind. And we need to be careful not to get caught up into being too busy. Too busy in those things that really don't matter in the end. In the light of the reality of eternity, we should make sure to the best of our ability that we're not wasting our time on those things that are only temporal. We should not spend a lot of time and a lot of energy 
on those things that are passing away, those things that are fleeting, those things, again, that are temporal. We need to keep a proper vision of the eternal. We need to all, again, keep a proper understanding that we are representatives of Christ in a fallen world everywhere we go. And that we're all called to be ministers of mercy. Right? We're all called, as we represent Christ, to do spiritually good for others around us. So again, by the commentators, there seems to be a great desire to kind of heap up on these guys and point out the fact they're not doing what the Lord has called them to do. Therefore, they're in disobedience. Okay. What if we turn the question around? What if we turn the issue around? Forget these guys for the moment and just ask ourselves the question, are we doing what the Lord has called us to do? So maybe you agree with the commentators who say, you guys are in great disobedience. Okay, I'll give it to you. You can have that argument. Forget them for the moment. What about you? Are you walking in obedience to the Lord and his call on your life? Are you obeying what he has called you to do? Are you actively conscious of the fact that you're his ambassador representing him? Are you actively consciously ministering mercy, doing spiritually good to those around you? Because that's the call of all Christians on their life. Or are you caught up in the temporal, the urgent, right? You understand that? The urgent versus the important. The temporal versus the eternal. If I ask you the question, what motivates your life? on a daily basis, if your answer is anything less than an honest, the glory of Christ, then your life needs to be evaluated. And you need to make changes on how you spend your time, how you spend your resources, what you think is important. And again, you can take whatever position you want on the text. You can completely disagree with me. That's, that, that's fine. But maybe we'd all be better off examining ourselves versus examining the heart motives of these guys here in, in the story when I don't think it's absolutely clear either way, one way or the other. So do I think that in the context of the story, the Lord's calling these men to admit their disobedience and their abject failures because they're walking in gross disobedience? I, I, can't, I can't go there. I'm, I'm not convinced. However, in the context of the story, I do think that the Lord is about to display his magnificent divine power his sovereignty in the lives of these men because he knows exactly where the fish are. He knew what side of the ship to drop down the net because he's the sovereign. He's the sovereign over everything, even the sea. I do believe that the Lord is about to demonstrate again post-resurrection that he is going to continue to be who he is. He's going to continue to provide for the needs. He's going to continue to compassionately care for these men and put that on display. I think that's true. Jesus therefore said to them, children, do you not have, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered him, no, verse 6. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find fish. Now here you go. Do you know why the Lord told them to cast the net on the right side of the boat? Do you need a little bit more time? Here's the answer why he told them to cast the net on the right side of the boat. Because the fish were not on the left side of the boat. Right? Not because, as one commentator suggested, this is some kind of divine foreshadowing coming out of Matthew 24, verse 34. Listen. 
the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. We don't need to do that with the text of scripture. We just need to let the text of scripture everywhere says what it says, say what it says. This is not a spiritual super secret message on election. This is a story about catching fish and catching a lot of fish. That's what it's about. Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find a catch. Therefore they cast, therefore, and they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Now again, at the moment, the disciples don't know who is giving them this instruction. There's really no compelling reason for them uh, to listen to the voice of the stranger. I mean, again, they're the experienced fishermen and they've been out all night and they haven't caught anything. Probably would have made a certain amount of sense for them not to uh, take the command from this perfect stranger. And who in the world is he to tell them what to do? And he's 100 yards off on the shore, and they're in the, in the, the, in the middle of the water. And who are they to listen to him to catch fish? So he could have, <laughs> I was going to say, he could have said, they could have said pound sand, but you can't say that. So they could have said, thank you very much. Thank you very much. We'll do what we want to do. But they didn't do that. So I don't know, who knows? Maybe perhaps there was something compelling in his voice, something authoritative in his voice uh, from this man of the shore, or, or, or um, whatever. They let down the fish, let down the catch. I do think that they're going to be very quickly reminded of what happened in Luke chapter 5. Said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll catch, or you'll find a catch. They cast therefore, and they were not able to haul in because the number was great. Again, now they understand. Now they're starting to see. Now they're going back. Their minds are running back to that Luke chapter 5 uh, passage and, and what happened to them there. They were not able to haul it in because of the great num excuse me, number of fish, verse 7. The disciple, therefore, whom Jesus loved, that would be John again, said to Peter, it's the Lord. I mean, there's no doubt about it, right? The evidence is overwhelming. His divine power is on display. His divine knowledge, who else would know uh, except the Lord himself? So John, who had the tendency to perceive first, saw the fact first, and recognizes who's on the shore, he says it's the Lord. And Peter, who had the tendency to act first, does that very thing. So John's quicker to perceive and, and Peter's quicker to act. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put uh, his outer garment on for he was stripped for work. Now just a side note here, if you have the King James Version when it says for he was naked, probably not the best translation because the idea here probably is not that he was stark naked. The, the idea is probably he was wearing some kind of undergarment or loincloth. Uh, it's warm, it's springtime. So again, the verse continues, said he threw himself into the sea. So uh, again, so intense is uh, Peter's love for the Lord. He wants to get to him. He can't wait. Verse 8, the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So the other disciples are less impulsive than Peter. They remain in the boat that must have landed pretty soon after Peter stepped onto the beach because, again, they're 100 yards uh, uh, off, off land. Verse 9. When they, got out of the, when they got out upon the land, they saw the charcoal fire already laid and, the fi and fish placed on it and bread. So again, here's just the Lord providing for his disciples after post-resurrection. He's the one who always provided them. He's the one who always cared for them. He, he, he's the one who, who served them always. He, he, he washed their feet. He provided for their needs. And now these guys have been working all night. They're hungry. They're tired. And the Lord prepares breakfast for them. Again, it's just a demonstration post-resurrection and his appearances that he's going to continue to be who he is because that's who he is. He's going to continue to compassionately meet the needs of his people. The very same one who said in John 14, 13, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. 
that my Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. You see the same thing in John 15, 7, and the same thing in John 15, uh, uh, 16. Ask. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, I will do it. So when they got up out of up upon the land, they saw the charcoal fire already laid and the fish placed on it. In bread, verse 10, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. So basically, we're going to need more food here. You guys are hungry. We're going to have to make a little bit more breakfast. We've been working all night. Verse 11, Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land. Probably means that Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land. Doesn't have anything to do with Christ returning. When he's pleased to give us success, meaning nothing can prevent souls from being brought into the gospel net of being converted and saved. More crazy talk, more back to my theological word at the beginning, more what? Monkey business, right? Monkey business. Simon Peter and Drew, Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land because that's what the Lord told him to do. He needed a little bit more fish. And Peter was able to draw the net up all by himself, suggesting maybe he was strong. Some guys go, go to town on this one. Why these other guys can barely haul the thing? He hauls, he must be big, big Peter. Not big John, but big Peter, right? I mean, maybe he's a big guy, I don't know, formidable strength. He draws a, the, the, the net to land full of uh, large fish, 153. And you know what 153 means? Probably means there was not 154. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. I don't know. Maybe this is a post-resurrection net, you know, some kind of a net in the eternal state, uh, you know. I'm just kidding, right? Why'd they count the fish? Not because we will not know the full number of God's elect until we reach the heavenly shores. I can tell you, that's not a reason. Why'd they count them? Uh, why'd they wait to count them on land? Well, I don't know, just a suggestion, but perhaps it's easier to count them on land than it is to catch them, count them in the water, since in the water fish tend to be a little slippery. I don't know. I do know that the land doesn't represent some kind of, does not represent some kind of spiritual symbol of the shores of heaven. Why did they count them? I don't know. Maybe they're going to divide them up. Or, I don't know, maybe they counted them, they just go like, hey, I wonder how many fish we caught. And so they just sit down and counted them, because that's sometimes what you do, you're inquisitive. And just to put another thought in the idea of the category, these men were not really engrossed in disobedient to Jesus, abandoning their calls uh, to serve in the, in the gospel ministry. Have I not read someplace in the Bible that if you like to eat, you probably ought to work? Maybe they're hungry. It's a great cache of fish, obviously. And this great cache of fish could have been preserved and eaten for quite a few days. They could have even sold some of the fish to acquire different things that they needed so maybe the story isn't they're so disobedient maybe the story is god just continued the, through the person of jesus christ to, to bless them to, to provide for their needs so again i'm not convinced the fishing expedition is some kind of great act of evil and, and disobedience because people in active ministry still need to eat also, all, all, also, right? Great commission hasn't been given. The Holy Spirit's not given to empower them for their ministry. I personally don't see these guys fishing, providing for the substance any different than Paul, who is a, both in ministry and a tent maker to provide for his needs. Verse 12 says, Jesus said to them, Come, have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him. Are you 
who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? Straightforward. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and fish likewise. And now this is the third time Jesus was manifested to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. A very straightforward narrative text, and that's okay. We don't have to spiritualize everything or allegorize everything. It just says what it says. Jesus is alive. He's real. Uh, he, he's defeated death. He continues to dwell with his people. He, he fellowships with his people. He cares for his people. He compassionately cares for them. He, he provides for the needs. Now, next time, Lord willing, we're going to see the compassionate Christ extend that grace and compassion to Peter because he's got to resolve that problem. What are you going to do with Peter, who's denied the Lord three times? So he's going to bring him back, restore him into ministry. All right? There you go. Our Father and our God, we're so thankful for an opportunity to uh, spend time looking at this text and again reminded of, of the fact that uh, you know how to communicate. And while there's some things that are difficult for us to understand, I, I, under, I get that. Not, not everything should be allegorized, spiritualized, or uh, it's some, it just says what it says. And, and so we just take it at face value and we thank you for your presence. Thank you for your compassion. Thank you that even when we are disobedient, you are a God of great grace and mercy. As we'll see next time, as you restore Peter uh, to, to full-time uh, ministry, uh, because uh, your uh, grace is great, uh, your mercy uh, abundant and overflowing. We thank you for our time in your word, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.